folks, everybody out there in radio, podcast land, and uh, internet land, welcome back. Another week goes by. Rick Wagner getting right here on KNZZ, KGLN, all of Western Colorado, Eastern Utah, and many other places on the interwebs, and uh, of course, uh, ships at sea, which we never like to forget, of course. <laughs> but uh, welcome back, folks. Hope you had a good vacation, or at least relaxing at home. Uh, sometimes it's not the best idea to get on the roads during some of these really busy holidays. And, you know, the Memorial Day weekend and Labor Day weekend are usually just traffic nightmares a lot of places. So hope you are careful out there on the roads. Uh, I know at my business here with people getting car, car accidents uh, that uh, a little while after these particular holidays, I start getting phone calls from folks, So, which I'm happy to help. I'm glad to do so. I just uh, want people to be careful out there. It's uh, easy to push yourself to get home or somewhere else, you know, and because uh, you're in a time frame. So it, it could be stressful. Anyway, I wanted to bring up, before I forget, last week I spoke a fair amount about the book that I've really been interested in, The Fourth Turning in American Prophecy. And, you know, there's, a, there's another one out by one of the authors that's uh, pretty new that adds to this. But I wanted to talk about it because... As usual, I forgot to mention the title and the authors after we talked about it for a while. And people had asked me, hey, aren't you talking about that book? What was that book again? And I always forget to do it at the front and the end. Because it always reminds me of the situation where you're just half listening to the radio and there's a song playing on there. And then you kind of perk your ears up and you go, oh, I remember that song. Who was, who was the artist and who did that song? And then, of course, the DJ comes on and sometimes even talks about the song, but doesn't tell you who sung it. <laughs> and it's so frustrating. So I don't want to be in that category. The fourth turning we talked about last time was an American prophecy. Uh, was written real, oh, man. was written by William Strauss and Neil Howe. It's a 97 book, but it really seems to zoom in right now. And Howe, uh, William Neil Howe, rather, has uh, written a... Uh, sort of an extension of that. I think he wrote it last year, or it might have just come out this year. And so I, I'm sort of obsessed with it because it seems to fit so well into American history. And it also, it, when you break it down, seems sort of intuitive, which makes me want to pay even more attention to it. And part of it is, of course, if you remember that he sort of breaks history down, in particular American history, but it works with some others, too. Uh, into sort of like a hundred-year cycle, or a little bit more or less, but usually a little bit more, uh, with four different cycles within it, which he calls turnings. And it, they're sort of a generational one. And if you think of them sort of generationally, it's kind of easier to understand what what's happening here and why it even makes better sense. And I'll just reiterate them. You know, they believe that there is a high time, not like some people think these days, you know, with the uh, legalization of marijuana. But instead, it's a time of peace and prosperity when institutions are strong and people are optimistic about the future. That's 25 years or so, maybe a little longer. Then they predict an awakening, a time of social and cultural upheaval. As they say, when the old ways are challenged and new ideas emerge. All right. Another 25 years of that happening. And then we get the unraveling. Time of social and political division, institutions are weakened, people become cynical about the future. It takes a while for all that unraveling to come about, and so 25 years or so is kind of where they see that. And then you hit crisis, 
a time of war or revolution when the old order is destroyed and a new one is created. It doesn't necessarily have to be a shooting war or anything like that. It can be a very strong cultural revolution or social revolution as well. It really seems to fit in these things when you look at what they're talking about and you look at particular time frames. You look at like the distant, what happens between the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. And then you go ahead in that and you go to the Depression, the Second World War, and then that cycle is pretty much what we're in now. And if you look at their predictions, particularly a little bit of what looks like in the new book, they place the crisis, you know, coming out of the unraveling, they place the crisis at maybe 20 to 23, 20, 20 to 20, 23, which seems to me about right on. <laughs> so I feel like we might be entering that. Many people criticize this particular book, say, oh, well, it, it doesn't take into account uh, the individual things of human nature and it doesn't take into account, uh, you know, that time may not be so deterministic. And I think those are relatively, you know, good criticisms. But we do have some evidence of it. And especially when you realize, when you look at this, it, it breaks down to a phrase that you guys all probably know. And uh, let's see, the phrase is actually, I think it first pops up in a novel by a guy named uh, G. Michael Hopf, because I, I looked that up. It's a post-apocalyptic manual. Boy, I just should stop talking all altogether today. And here's the quote. Hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. And weak men create hard times. And, of course, the cycle begins again. I think that's pretty darn true. Of course, in our situation, we had a crisis hard time created good men hard men gi sort of generation you know we call them the greatest generation kind of fits into their theory right and those people created a world you know uh, fighting through to get this prosperity they made strong institutions people were extremely optimistic about the future look what happened in the 50s and 60s how optimistic people were about the future uh, I talked about this before. Look at everything. Look at the advertising. Very optimistic, very forward-looking. Everything seemed modern. We see that in, like, 60s furniture. Everything, they're trying to get modern. And then the cars are all associated with, you know, rockets and uh, just a, a, a bright future. If you look at any of the magazines. Then, you know, what do we hit? Well, we hit the late 60s. And... The big bunch of baby boomers who were the children of these folks, you know, the greatest generation. And there's a whole lot of them. It's a huge demographic surge, begins to move to society. And we know what they're talking about here. This gets societal upheaval in the late 60s and probably through the mid-70s. Old ways are challenged. New ideas are emerging. You have some time of that. And then you get to the unraveling. And you can see that, too. Because we've been in it, I think, for a while. There's all this political divisions, hyper-partisanship, all this kind of stuff. And it, it creates, you know, weak institutions, a lack of trust in the institutions and really everything that was created by the framers and by the men and women who uh, were from the greatest generation. Uh, it becomes to be attacked. Everyone's cynical. They're trying to tear all that down. And that leads to crisis period 
And of course, what we see here is that something that is easy to see, I think, that when people go through really tough times and they want to create a strong, bright future, they work hard to do it. People that follow after that are the beneficiaries of that. And oftentimes, while they're working within that framework, over time, they forget what was done to put them in the place they're at. And then the generation comes along that wasn't exposed to any of that, World War II in our case, and the immediate aftermath. And they decide that, oh, you know, there's all this new stuff out here we should be doing. And they sort of lose their way a little bit. And they challenge them. And sometimes new ideas emerge, and sometimes they're good. And then, of course, you reach that stage where everybody is so far removed, and they have had things so good for so long, they assume that they can try and do everything and redo all the institutions, redo everything uh, that has worked before, and try and re-put it together. It's like knocking down a building of Legos and then trying to just reassemble them in a new way. See what's going on. And, of course, this is because they don't understand how hard it was to get there. They have been hardened by that experience. And they think that it's just something they can do and redo. And, you know, was, hey, that's, it'll always be good no matter what we do. We'll just change it to make it better. Those are the people that are pretty dangerous to society. That's right, everybody. We got the power right now. Doesn't seem like it, but we're still holding on to it for a little bit. Well, when it slips away entirely from us, I think we'll know. <laughs> when they stop trying to convince us that what they're doing is a good idea, then we'll know that we don't have any power anymore. So think of it that way. When you're getting all of the misrepresentation and the spin and the outright falsehoods that get thrown at you, they at least must think that you have some power and they need to convince you of something. You know, it's when they don't care what you think because they don't think you can do anything about it. That's when things are as bad as they get. Anyway, thanks for hanging on, folks. We appreciate it. So I know I've been uh, going on and on about this, the fourth turning book that I became fascinated with. And, it's, and I'll tell you what got me going on it when I was looking at the uh, synopsis was that, it, you know, because I've been going on about how they, there's these four events, right, the four turning points that they about 20 to 25 years apart. And then that when you overlay them with American history in those periods, it's pretty, pretty good. And uh, when you overlay it in a lot of other places outside of America, you see, you see the same sort of things. Now, there can be interruptions in there. Uh, you know, like a volcano goes off or things like that. But for the most part, the argument, like I said before, it's a generational argument. It, it's about how groups move through society and the attitudes they have about what came before and what they're doing now and how that's affected by their own experience in the prior generational situation. And that's what makes it very interesting, particularly if you're looking at, you know, say, Zoomers, <laughs> the Gen Z out there. You go, okay, there's that crisis bunch. And what got my eye was, and then the book was written in 97. Now, there's been another update where one of the authors, like I mentioned, wrote something. I think he wrote it in 21 or something. But um, the main book with the, the theory and everything laid out that under that theory then in 97, the idea that the crisis phase in America would start in 2020 based on kind of the cyclical nature of everything. Well, maybe it's just me, but the election of uh, Joe Biden in 2020 seemed to me to uh, 
take what was sort of an unraveling before, and uh, now someone's tied the unraveling on that sweater to uh, a motorcycle and taken off, and the sweater's just disappearing at an alarming rate. Uh, it's more than unraveling; it's disappearing. So it's that that is what caught my eye on that, you know. And as you know, what happens in a in a fourth period, a crisis period, is like revolution, right? You, you get that. Uh, you can also get uh, wars in other places. You get an economic collapse. You get all sorts of stuff. And, and matter of fact, in one of the the prediction in uh, about the unraveling phase, right, uh, which would have been back in the 2000s was, you know, an economic problem could come up and it, it sort of landed right on the Great Recession of 2008. So you you see something going on here. And like I said, it's not a crystal ball thing or Nostradamus thing or, or something like that where everybody is, uh, you know, just kind of, you know, reading the tea leaves. This is, a, you know, a structural analysis with a generational look at things, and then overlaying it to actual events. So that's kind of what got my eye on it, too. Uh, you know, Now, they do talk about natural disasters. I'm not sure if Joe Biden falls into a political upheaval or natural disaster. So it's hard for me to say. Uh, it is, of course, some sort of uh, riot in uh, the White House. There's a riot going on there <laughs> in that they're tearing everything down. I don't know if, it, if it's systemic, if they're just... Uh, Moving through, uh, you know, looking through the history books and seeing what's happened in society and just trying to, you know, tear every piece down so that they can form something that they think will be better, which is a, which is a, a component of something like that, isn't it? They, the generations forget how they got there. They forget how difficult it was to establish the framework to begin with what they're living in now. And then that, that next generation, uh, usually their parents, who have had that awakening, right? They, they they took that framework and they moved through it and they had some new ideas and some changes and so forth. And by the end of that, the next generation comes along and that's when they start unraveling. So we, we could just look back and see that pretty simply. And I just have to read the news. There are things in the news that have begun to happen with such rapidity that it's hard to sort of uh, wrap your head around it. And I'm already seeing some things with language again that was uh, I, I resist because they the left controls the language if they can, and you just can't let that happen because then it just becomes a drumbeat of sort of a misrepresentation because the language they choose is not congruent most of the time with what they're doing, and I was looking at. Oh, reading something, and they were discussing, oh, some of this uh, male biological males competing in uh, sports against biological females, and of course, you know, also with the age of consent, as it were, to change your sex. You know, and should parents be involved in that? I mean, once you have the child, it's no longer yours. If you listen to some of these people, then he should be moved out into the. The care of the village. We get all that started with Hillary Clinton. And, but the, the term starts getting injected into this trans rights, trans rights, trans rights. Well, certainly there are some periods where you're looking at specific rights, transsexual people. But it gets skewed a little bit. You know, I mean, yeah, you can say that being able to, allowed to compete against, you know, 
anybody you want to, let's say, uh, should be their right. But it's, that's not really straight on, is it? It's not really what you're talking about. It's not really a right. It is a systemic approach to try and, you know, get some gateways through society. I mean, if, if you want to say that and you go to say the senior games for, uh, weightlifting, and you want to enter as a 30-year-old because you now identify as a 75-year-old, we always make these jokes, but why not? I mean, I mean, it, there, there's obvious some differences there, and they would, of course, point those out, I suppose. I mean, that may be the next uh, frontier that they, they go after. But uh, So those kinds of things, uh, they're, they're excellent corollaries to discuss with this. It's not really a rights thing exactly. Like I said, it, it doesn't, that the, the terms rights doesn't hit right on with some of these things. Especially with the parent right of being informed of what their child is doing, especially with very serious decision making. Now, we all know that decision making for children is something that they try and learn from their parents. In other words, parents makes, help them make the decisions or they suggest them, we all know as when we were kids too, that, you know, your parents would tell you something that, uh, they'd been through and you wouldn't listen to them because you knew better because, oh, well, that was the way when you were a kid. Um, I mean, now, I mean, this is all different. I mean, it's completely different. And of course, it was exactly the same and you just weren't listening. But nevertheless, even that process helps formulate some worldview and some setting in which to make your decisions. I remember when I did that, and was, boy, that was a mistake, you know, that kind of thing. But a lot of the guidance you get for these things is parental, especially when you're very young, where the guidance you're getting is hopefully protective. And we always read these terrible stories. I have to stop reading them about these, you know, crazy or just evil parents and what happens to some of these children. But uh, nevertheless, for the most part, not only like we talked about before, do do children learn parenting from their own parents, hopefully, and not from their smartphones, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago about how many, you know, new mothers say they get all so much of their advice from Google and on their smartphone. But so, so you have that, that setting, right? And, and that allows you to make the decision making. So you're not really talking about the rights of transsexual individuals when you talk about that. You're really talking about a tension between the right of the parent, of which we've always, you know, had a lot of assumptions about, and this new idea that children of fairly young ages have a set of rights independent of their parents that in most cases now trump their parents' rights to be informed, to direct them, things like that. That's a different thing. We're not really talking about trans rights here. We're talking about the right of parents versus these created rights and the strength of those rights that they're sticking in with children. That has more of an effect than just in this particular argument. If if you're able to take away the ability for parents to control what children hear or see or anything, then, then you're losing the ability to be able to shape what your children are going to turn out to be. In, in all sorts of regards, politically, ethically, morally, all these kinds of things, long after this argument. And if you want to undermine a system 
that's certainly the way to do it because at some point who's going to be you know standing up for the system for saying well I think this is pretty good not people that have never learned about it or if they've learned about it they've learned that it's nothing but bad and the parents uh, are not allowed to really involve themselves too much with that or are being told what they're doing the idea that you shouldn't have some sort of input into what your child learns or certainly information about what's going on at, at any given time would have stunned people if the idea that you couldn't find it. But that's starting to happen now when you parents make these inquiries. Hey, everybody, we're back. Thanks for sticking around for us as we come around the horn there on the clock. Oh, well, so after our, our intellectual interlude, we will turn to a deeply dim-witted part of the uh, culture. We'll look at the news. Yes, that's right, I know. But some of these stories have to be talked about. And I've listed most of them here on the webpage that you can reach at therickwagnershow.com or politicalviking.com, depends on where you're coming from. And uh, it's uh, it's all pretty interesting. I, I put a posting up here that I thought kind of defined what some of the people have been talking about with this Ukrainian war situation. And like, when does it end in terms of how much money we give? Say nothing about how much of our stuff we give. And are we getting the right story out of there? And I keep reading things more and more that, you know, we're, we're only getting one side of the story. It seems as though we get the Ukrainian side of everything. And that's what we put on our news channels for the most part without really being able to check most of it at all. And of course, the Russian side is exactly the opposite. Eh, probably just as untrustworthy. So it's very difficult to find out what's going on. And because so many people on the left, especially, and some on the right, are such relentless cheerleaders here, it's really hard to figure out what's happening there. But there was a, there was a great article. It's called Preparing to Lose Two Wars. It really is just talking about what this commitment to the Ukraine is doing to us. And you, you can decide if you think it's a great to uh, support the Ukrainians against the Russians, which is you know, a pretty good thing in the sense that I don't want the Russians to win anything. But what is it costing us? What are we giving our money to? That's something else. I think back of the quote from Harry Truman. Cleaned it up a little bit for radio. He said, uh, well, he might be a son of a gun, but he's our son of a gun. That's kind of where we're looking at Ukraine. Well, it might be sort of a corrupt kind of sort of, uh, you know, democracy slash slightly dictatorial government. But, hey, they're at least on our side. Well, well, they're on our side now because we're giving them everything. How hard is that to tell? <laughs> and they were on our side a little bit when uh, they, we were sending uh, our politicians' sons all over the boards over there and uh, getting prosecutors filed, fired. rather. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not exactly sure that's a particularly telling thing. But if you take that out of it, if you look at how much money we're spending, and, and if you compare it to what we have going on here, people like to compare the amount of money that goes to Ukraine versus uh, our own border, or building a wall, or, you know, you name it. And it's pretty the it's pretty outsized in terms, of, in terms of what's going overseas versus what's staying here, doing important tasks that most of us think need to be done. But what he's talking about here is that as we give away all this money, that's one thing. But the other thing we're giving away with all this hardware, and we talk about all the time this ammunition shortage that we're coming across. You know, our military, not only is it not 
getting its recruiting standards met. I mean, I think the only branch of the services that uh, met the recruiting standards uh, were the Marines. And I think that, let's see, the last I checked, I think the Army was down 10,000 people and Navy maybe seven. Uh, so we can't even get people in there. And when you kind of see some of the policies they're coming up with, you see why people are not as excited about being in the military and some of these policies as they were in the past. But even beyond that, you can have pretty good soldiers, very good soldiers, but without the equipment, pretty hard to achieve anything. So you can have, for instance, a really nice rifle. Oh, gosh, you could have, say, any of the SIGs. Of course, they don't use that anymore. But, you you know, you could have any of the M16, rather the M4 and their derivations and some of the other stuff out there. You have all those things, you know, just perfectly set. But if there is no rounds, if there are no rounds to go in it, it becomes just kind of a club. And not a very good one at that because you could break it kind of easy. So what's going on with that? Well, this guy says that we lose two wars. He said, you know, we're we're still... We will still be dredged down in Ukraine, and if something happens in China, and even if we don't want to do anything, but we want to supply them with something, because China, Taiwan, pretty important, pretty important to us uh, in terms of our productivity with chips and things like that. To say nothing about just you know, being humiliated with someone we've uh, said we were trying to help guarantee their safety. At one point, about over 90% of the chips that were manufactured for a number of our items, like our phones and things like that, were being made in Taiwan. So uh, if your technological society is so important to you, you really ought to keep your eye on that. It goes back to the old saying, if you put all your eggs in one basket, you really need to watch that basket. And so if we don't have any of this equipment, ammunition and so forth, to really supply what's going on in Ukraine, which is starting to be apparent here and there, what are we going to do if something of similar sorts of situation arises in Taiwan. We just don't have the wherewithal to do it. America has always, since World War II, has had the philosophy and tried to create a military force that could fight on two fronts. We learned our lesson in World War II, luckily without being, you know, taken over by someone, that we could easily have a war on two fronts, and we needed to have a military that was able to do that. And we have tried to do that for decades, and we've been largely successful. Over the last, I would say, since the Obama, especially since the Obama years, we have just been falling behind. China now has more warships than us. And that was unheard of maybe 25 or 30 years ago. They also have aircraft carriers, which is an interesting development because we argue back and forth about if the time of the aircraft carrier and the carrier group is passed, because they are vulnerable to certain kinds of missiles. For instance, the Harpoon missile that uh, the Ukrainians keep wanting. Uh, you have to be very careful uh, if you are in a, a carrier group to screen the carrier properly, because there are some you know, surface-to-sea missiles out there that can be very damaging. You say nothing about aircraft. And apparently these drones are becoming more and more problematic. So we have to be able to project force in both directions, and it's just it's not going to be happening now. If China does something next year, year after, this year, whatever, if we don't make some drastic changes, I mean, drastic changes in, in what we're doing and what we're keeping and producing, 
we're not going to have the wherewithal to supply anybody with enough equipment and ammunition and transport to be able to hold off much of anything. So we would end up, this is why this guy's saying this in this piece, is that we'd end up sort of failing at both ends. We'd end up failing in Ukraine, and we end up failing to protect Taiwan. And like I said, if you think that it's going to affect us, I mean, Ukraine doesn't affect us a whole lot. It just creates more of a threat to the rest of Europe, which we have always traditionally tried to defend from the Soviet Union during the Cold War and afterwards. Uh, until you get to Obama, who wanted to take the missiles out of there and, you know, the whole kinds of business, so that our deterrence is is dropped way down long before this. And we've talked about before that we are a long ways away from Eastern Europe. So while we keep sizable amount of troops in Europe, a lot of the deterrence along that was coming from missiles and uh, anti-ballistic stuff and things of that nature, and a deterrence. By letting that disappear, not keeping it in these countries, not doing that well, Russians don't have very far to go before they're in another country, like sometimes, I don't know, 10 feet? <laughs> and, and we're making this argument about the Ukraine, like, oh, well, then, then Poland will be next to us, and that, and that might very well be true. But remember, we sat with the Soviet Union in Poland, in East Germany, in Lithuania, you know, all the way up uh, for a long time. We didn't like it very dangerous there. But it doesn't mean if they were to cross over, they would immediately take over Europe. I don't think that would happen. But we act, we're still kind of acting like that, and we're sort of acting like uh, Ukraine is a stopgap for all of that. It's a little bit like when people used to make fun of the domino theory in Vietnam. Remember that theory? The domino theory was that if you let Vietnam fall to the communists, then before you know it, it's Laos and then Cambodia, and you know it just goes up the chain across there, and pretty soon you'll be in the Indian subcontinent. I mean, that was the, the domino theory, and there was some portion of truth to that. So you could make the argument: look, we're not just we're not defending Vietnam because what is Vietnam to us really? We're trying to keep the uh, Chai Coms from taking over that whole area down there and really threatening everybody. Uh, there and of course south of them and of course who they're going to, going to threaten from there is New Zealand and Australia. Not that far away. So that was that theory. But, but it sounds increasingly like that kind of talk when we discuss the Ukraine. So it's funny that the people that thought that was ridiculous, you know, many of these uh, were sort of peace protesters in the 60s and 70s uh, that are in politics now and in the media, of course, now use that same talk about that after they had lashed out at it for years before. Oh, that's ridiculous, this and that. It seems very similar to me. It makes it hard for me to take them seriously. Man, I'm just, I don't, some of these I just don't even want to, you've seen them before, they're just, uh, oh, by the way, if you get an opportunity, you might read uh, the column that's written by Jordan Peterson. Most of you know who Jordan Peterson is. Very brilliant guy, a psychologist from Canada, you know, who, who really made waves a couple of years ago, two and a half years ago, maybe almost three now, for refusing to uh, let the government of Canada mandate what pronouns he used for people. And it's just grown from there. Has a huge following uh, in the United States, and uh, his videos are all over YouTube. They're always well worth watching. And finally, 
they're, uh, you know, they've finally figured out a way to marshal their forces against him up in Canada. Well, they're taking complaints about him on a professional level and said that a lot of his, what he's saying is problematic and people have uh, complained about it and he needs to spend several months in essentially a re-education. I think they might even call it a re-education situation in order to hold on to his license to be a licensed uh, psychologist and counselor up in Canada. Well, when you when you read about it, and if you haven't heard it before, I mean, some of this becomes kind of absurd. The complaints they're getting are not from people or even his patients. Okay, he's, he's, He has no direct contact with them. They just don't like what he says. And they think that it undermines the profession, which is an interesting take on these things. And because of that, he needs to be re-educated to understand the effect of his words and so forth on everyone else. So that's pretty chilling if you think about that. I mean, it's, you know, right up there with uh, the next story I had up there, which is Kamala Harris says she may have to take over as president and is ready to do so. I mean, she softened that up, by the way, by saying, well, of course, Joe's just fine and there's no reason for me to think that would happen. But I am ready. I am ready. I am completely sure she thinks she's ready. And she thought she was ready to be the district attorney in San Francisco. She thought she was ready to be the attorney general of California. Same thing, she thought she was ready to be a senator, and uh, she thought she was ready to be vice president. So all along, she thought she was ready. There's not been one instance of any proof of that. <laughs> she has been unready for each job she's had. So it's interesting to see how she comes across that way. It's a sort of a hysterical blindness, I guess. But, uh, you know, there was a uh, in English, if you want to call it, but before it was really English, almost Celtic, but uh, King before the uh, Hastings in 1066, uh, who was called Ethelred the Unready. Uh, that's a tough name to carry down through the ages, right? Ethelred the Unready sort of applies to Kamala. She's not ready, but she thinks she is. It makes a fascinating uh, study of hubris or just blindness to your own situation, I suppose. It's very concerning this what's happening to Jordan Peterson, but it gives you a little uh, ice water down your veins when you see Kamala talking like that. Now, in the state of Colorado, as many of you may know, if you don't know, I hope you do, but if you don't, you know that there's a group out there, uh, which is really, I believe, sort of getting a lot of support from outside of the state. Uh, they filed a lawsuit based on that 14th Amendment claim to keep Donald Trump off the Colorado ballot. So those of you out there that are trying to decide if uh, you vote for Trump or one of the other people, you may not have to make that decision. If these guys have their way, Donald Trump will be on the ballot. I don't think this is going to be successful. I'm, I'm afraid to say things like that. I mean, this 14th Amendment argument is ridiculous. And you get Lawrence Tribe and some of these other you know people who are legal scholars out there. They're just spin masters. Uh, they have surrendered their souls to this political end as opposed to any judicious reasoning. As many of you have probably heard, the part of the 14th Amendment, remember the 14th Amendment was passed after the Civil War. And the purpose of it was, one of the many, several purposes, was to apply the constitutional safeguards to the states. Because in the past, the idea about the safeguards that the Constitution guaranteed in many instances only applied to the federal government, not to the state. So the 14th Amendment was to make sure those were applied after the, you know, after the big fight, right? It also contained in there, there's, there's several different things, but, uh, and it, a lot of it is addressing what happened after 
the Civil War uh, with uh, you know equal an equal protection of the law, things like that, to try and alleviate what had been going on in the South. But there's also the point in there about that if you had participated in an insurrection uh, or uh, a secession, I suppose, from the United States, that you could not, after that, hold any office, any elected office in the United States. Okay. And you read the history of it, it's clearly aimed at the South and the Civil War idea. And eventually, uh, you know, Ku Klux Klan organizers and stuff down there, mostly Democrats, remember, uh, trying to run candidates to get them into national office or even state office and sort of recreate, uh, to some extent, the problem that caused the Civil War. So that was a way they thought they could handle it. They didn't want all of these uh, former Confederates, many of whom were popular in their state, uh, from just running for office again and then they get back in Congress or something. And so this is why that's passed. It, it, it does not have a connection to what Donald Trump was even alleged to have doing. He didn't foment an insurrection. Well, I guess I could say that they allege that he did, uh, or anything like that. And just, this is why they keep trying to label the January 6th situation, and it was a riot in some instances, depending where you looked in there to an insurrection. And they keep trying to find people like this Proud Boy leader that got, what, uh, 17 years, I think, uh, as a ringleader in this and that, and they, and they lecture them about it being an insurrection. It's a pretty broad interpretation of what an insurrection even is. And most of these people that are getting this January 6th thing, I don't, I don't think qualify for that kind of treatment. But it certainly doesn't seem to apply to anything that Donald Trump did. And it's a stretch to take a Civil War portion from the 14th Amendment and try and pretzel it into something that you can use against Donald Trump. So they got that lawsuit going here in Colorado. I don't think these lawsuits in various places will will go. It saddens me to think that they can make it happen in Colorado. They must assume that, you know, everybody here is you know, anti-Trump or something. I guess they don't actually get to the other side of the mountain, you know, the western slope. But, and it can happen in any state. Those of you listening to different states have to watch that. They keep, they keep trying to bring this up. And, you know, if they were successful in keeping it off the ballot in just a couple of states, that would be pretty difficult. It would make it impossible for them to win. And I obviously think that the Supreme Court will not stand up to that, even if it does become successful in some state. It's just, it is just at the very minimal level disturbing that people are trying to do this. But it, it is encouraging in a strange way, just like all of this prosecution is. If they didn't think Donald Trump could win, if he was as unpopular as they say, and all of these things, why would they care? Now there'd be some of it because there's just a lot of animus towards the guy. You know, he, he challenged them and the deep state and all these guys just wanted, Teach him a lesson so that nobody tries that again. That's part of it. But a lot of it is brought on when you really read through some of the lefty stuff out there, uh, the idea that they're afraid he might get elected again. Now, of course, people would vote for him or, you know, just idiotic, toothless wonders wandering aimlessly around and probably not even be able to read and, you know, how can they vote? You know, but they, but they are. But nevertheless, they're con- they are continuing to worry about that. You know, some of these present polls that came out, you know, this CNN poll that came out and 
so forth, that they either have them pretty much statistically tied or a couple of them come out with Trump a point ahead. And that's with all of this terrible publicity that's been going on. You also may have heard that the Fulton County DA down there uh, has asked for, and the judges allowed, well, they're going to live stream the trial. Once again, they're going to try and do the same thing that, that, that the poor, sad people on the January 6th committee are going to do. They think they're going to put it on TV in some way, and that's going to just make people horrified at what they're saying. And, oh, no, Donald Trump. or Now, it didn't happen then. It won't happen now. But it's very surprising a little bit. No, I guess it's not surprising. But you know that whole Fulton County grand jury stuff down there is pretty bad. I mean, if, if most of you may have seen, or some of you may have seen on Friday, that it came out that uh, this grand jury down there uh, in Fulton County also apparently wanted to charge Lindsey Graham, senator from South Carolina, and 21 other people beyond the 19 they already charged, including Michael Flynn, General Michael Flynn, and three uh, other Republican senators in these indictments. Think about that. I, I mean, I wrote about that. I said it's pretty ambitious. It's sort of using a uh, a grand jury to sort of pull off some sort of governmental coup. Um, I'm beginning to think the insurrection is on the other side. But that should be pretty chilling. All of these people are political members. Almost all of them are Republicans. All of them, I think, are Republicans. And many of them are involved with uh, politics for the presidential year. And how do you, you prosecute in a county, in a county in Georgia, a senator from another state? I mean, what, what interference could they possibly have done? What, what, how could they even do that? And to get the, this information that comes out that the grand jury wanted to try, you know, to try and charge all these other people gives you some idea of out of control, uh, this prosecutor and what she's doing is. But it also gives you a scary idea about what's going on with these people. I mean, even the idea of that. I mean, I suppose that they would say pretty much that any political figure that showed up in Georgia, uh, which would be Fulton County, probably had to be in Atlanta at some point, uh, that said that they didn't think election was right and doing anything to try and get to the bottom of it, were somehow breaking the law. That's certainly something to think about. You guys have a great weekend. Talk to you soon.